Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. According to promise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I hope last week you considered how precious the law is. And without it, we wouldn't at all appreciate God's grace. It's just not possible without the law. We need the law. We love the, the use, the proper and right use of the law. And without the law, we wouldn't turn to Christ. And last week, we looked at two uses of the law. One is that it reveals our sin. And second, that it drives us, it propels us to Christ. This week, we're going to look at the third use of the law. Two examples of this, which is the third use of the law is protection. It protects us. And so I'll talk about the examples that are given by Paul in this passage, and then some of the blessings that flow out of this law. First are these examples. Paul uses two different metaphors, two different examples to describe how the law protects us in verses 23 to 26. And he does so by first describing the law as a protector in our prison. Now that seems strange, because the question is, how does prison protect us? Because let's look at verse 23 again. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And if you look at the first part of that verse, now before faith came, the question is, why does that give a time frame when it comes to faith? Because it seems like Abraham, who lived before Moses and the coming of the law, we are told that Abraham was justified by faith. So if faith came before the law, what is Paul referring to when he says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law? Faith in this instance really refers to the coming of the one who gives us faith. That is to say, the coming of Christ. And we're going to see this especially in chapter 4 when Paul describes this faith coming by saying, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. And our faith in Christ is the means by which we are delivered. We are transferred, you might say, No longer are we simply living under the law. Grace is operative, and it saves. He saves. So really, when Paul is saying, now before faith came, you could almost supplant that with the idea of, now before Jesus came, we were held captive under the law. 
But then it really begs the question, why does Paul refer to this coming of the law as, and the metaphor as a prison? It just seems so negative. Well, if, have you ever heard the term protective custody? It's when a person is put into prison for their protection, maybe a witness who is a mafia witness, and they're going to testify against this mob boss. If they're left out in the open, they're going to be killed by that mobster. And so federal agents will come in and perhaps put him into protective custody. They'll put him under house arrest. They will bring him to a safe house, which really is almost like a prison in a way. So for Paul, he's sort of using that type of metaphor, the idea that the law provides us protective custody. And protective custody has both a positive and negative element to it. On the positive side, when you are under protective custody, you're protected, your life is protected. Again, that metaphor of the mob boss, by being under federal protection in a safe house, even though it's prison-like, you can survive. So in that sense, it is positive. But obviously, no one wants to live under some sort of confinement. I mean, for those of us who have lived through this past year's confinement under COVID, and you haven't really been locked down in your house, but in a sense, you have been. And we live in nice homes. We're not living in a concrete cell with bars. But even in that context of living your own home and being locked down for three weeks or a month, you know how hard that is. No matter how nice the prison, it's still a prison. And so protective custody on the positive side has the blessing of your life being protected, but on the negative side, you're still confined. And that's why Paul is describing the law this way, because it, the confinement of the law has a protective element to it that is both positive and negative. One other thing is that Paul actually understood protective custody fully because he was preaching the gospel and he was arrested because the consul, the leadership and the military leaders at that time were afraid for Paul's life. So they arrested him. And then while he was in prison, it was discovered that there was going to be a plot against his life. And so he needed to go from the holding cell that he was at to a trial under Felix, the governor. And so during that transportation time of this prisoner, there was a plot made against him. And so people heard about it. They, this informant told the proconsul and the tribune, and he decided, okay, in order to get Paul to move from one location to the other, they had to bring together 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. That's actually quite a large contingent of soldiers to do that. And so for Paul... He's being brought under guard, heavy guard, and it was for his protection. But he certainly wasn't free. So too, the strong force of the law was given so that we could be transferred from under the bondage of our own sinfulness that the law points out to the freedom that is found in Christ. And in order to get to that place of transfer, we needed the protection of the law, an imprisonment of the law, a protective custody of the law. 
Because remember once again, the law reminds us that we desperately need Christ. And because the law shows us that we're always wanting to break the law, that our hearts so easily turn away from the law and from the Lord, the law points that out to us and it reveals to us we need Christ. It it brings our pride to an end. It brings to an end our efforts and it brings us ultimately safely home to our Savior. So the law drives us to Christ. So that's the first metaphor, the, the prison metaphor. The second is the metaphor in a home in verses 24 to 26. Paul says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Again, the shift now of metaphors from a prison to the home. And here Paul says the law was a guardian. The Greek word actually is pedagogon, and it's where we get the word pedagogue. And pedagogue or, is, is basically the, a teacher, a pedagogy, the, the sort of the framework of teaching. And the pedagogue's role, the guardian's role at this time in Paul's day was usually a slave. And they were brought into a wealthy person's home. They were sold into that home. And the role of that pedagogue was usually they were smart and they would take on this role of training up a young heir of that estate, of that home. And so they were usually um, a guardian, a protector, a teacher, a guide. It had a a full-orbed role in this home. Also, the pedagogue had a lot of control over that heir. The pedagogue could discipline that child and physically punish that child if they're not listening and paying attention. They usually learned philosophy and you know, the Socratic method and all these things. They learned mathematics and, and science. And so the pedagogue was their friend, was their mentor. They played a, a vast variety of roles over that heir until that heir became of age. And when they became an adult, no longer was that pedagogue needed. So when Paul uses this word guardian, he has in mind that framework and you have to keep that in mind. And so the point of it is that when a believer is young, when a person is young, they need the law. We all need the law, but eventually we are delivered to Christ. And so the law has this role of even being strict, of being a disciplinarian, of being someone who is going to point out failures and flaws and faults. And you need that person in order to understand how to live, how to be different. It doesn't doesn't actually cause you to live differently, but it points out how to do it. And so we see Paul using this metaphor to once again reiterate this truth, that the law has a very crucial purpose. It shows us that we need a savior. And without a savior, we cannot be sons and daughters. And we cannot be welcomed into God's family. Now, that's those two metaphors. And here's the thing about the law. The law always, always, always points out our sin. And you might say to yourself, I don't want that, actually. You know, I don't want to focus on my sin. I want grace. But 
again, we will never understand grace without realizing our sinfulness. And I've been reflecting on this more and more, and I would say this, and I don't think this is too strong of a statement to say, is that if we are not fully aware of the depth of our sinfulness on a pretty regular basis, we won't truly understand the gospel. The two go hand in hand. And it's not to say that our goal is to dwell on sin and sort of beat yourself up over it. And it, to do that is, that's called condemnation. And that's not the law's purpose. But the law does have this critical purpose of reminding you every day of every moment of your life that you cannot by your own strength, effort, and merit actually honestly worship God rightly. And we, we see this played out in all sorts of different ways in our boasting. Whenever we are quick to speak of ourselves, of our own merits, achievements, awards, we even do it subtly. And the more we do that, the more the law shows us that whoever God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So surely if you are caught up with yourself, and again, if we're really honest with ourselves, whether we do it intentionally or even subconsciously, or it's there at the base level, there is a desire to say, I am better than others. And sometimes we do it in a positive way, speaking of ourselves, and sometimes in a negative way by speaking ill of others, by gossip, slander, lies, criticisms, doing the work of the devil, which is, he's called the accuser of the brethren, and meaning he accuses. So on the negative side, the more we lower people to us, it's the same as boasting. One is lifting ourselves up, and the other is lowering everyone else. And all of that is the attempt to say that I'm actually pretty good. I merit God's favor. I know I do by my efforts. The law then says, well, if you really think you do that, well, forget about saying you're not a murderer or a a thief or someone who is committing adultery. Remember that it's actually all in your heart. Do you ever get angry? Do you ever sin? Now, here's the thing. We like euphemizing sin. Not euthanizing, euphemizing. We like using different words to describe sin. We don't like the biblical words of sin. Rather than saying, I am an angry person, which sounds very negative, I say, I am frustrated. I get irritable. I'm sort of moody. I'm passive aggressive. But don't call me angry. I'm not an angry person. Anger sounds like I need a a class to take anger management class. No, I'm just moody every once in a while. I have issues. But we don't want to use the the term anger because anger sounds like sin. Or maybe we don't ever steal. We just borrow permanently. We actually borrow something and never give it back. We never pay it back. We tell white lies rather than we lie. Oh, we're just saying a little accommodation. See, there are all these words to describe nicely ourselves because the one thing we don't want is to actually be known as a sinner. We 
we、uh, desire things rather than covet. We compare rather than covet. We we're every once in a while a little bit envious, but we don't covet. We talk about sin through the terms of brokenness, or we make mistakes every once in a while. We're flawed. We have some shortcomings. We have problems. But one of the things we don't want to say is, "I'm depraved." And sometimes you hear the words that we sing, and it'll say, "A worm like me," you know, a worm. If、uh, recently, my mother-in-law has been doing some gardening, and I bought like a from Costco. You know, those it was like a, a worm casings, and you pour it out, and you see all the worms. And that's the last thing you want to see is a bunch of worms squirming around, right? Because they're just so low. They're in the ground. They're dirty. And you hear a word like that, and granted, in Christ you are not a worm, but sin is wormy. Sin is really groveling in the ground. It is dark. We don't want to use dark words to describe what we do because it just doesn't sound good for us. The law points out that you are a sinner. You don't just borrow things temporarily. You steal. You don't just every once in a while tell a fib. You lie and bear false witness. We don't simply want to talk of ourselves and boasting. We are idolatrous, and whether we want to say it or not, we so often think classify these sins into two categories: the really bad ones, and the ones that are, as Jerry Bridges notes, the respectable ones. And we don't mind sharing about respectable ones as long as we don't have to use use words like murder and adultery and lust and greed. We want to use nicer words. The law shows us that you can't do that. When you break one part of the law, you break the whole law. And if you're really, again, honest with your own heart, and are open to the Spirit's move in your heart. You really can see the darkness of your soul. I like the way how Charles Spurgeon describes it. He says this: A gospel preacher on one occasion preached a sermon from, "Now also the axe is laid to the root of the trees," and he delivered such a sermon that one of his hearers said to him, "One would have you thought that you had been preaching to criminals. Your sermon ought to have been delivered in the county jail." Oh no," said the good man. If I were preaching in the county jail, I should not preach from that text. There, I should preach: "This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners." Just so, the law is for the self-righteous to humble their pride. The gospel is for the lost to remove their despair. You know, the law is needed for really nice, moral, religious, never messing up people. You need the law. The law is for people who think they're actually pretty good, relative to the child molester and to the the murderer and the rapist and the mass murderer and the Hitlers of the world. Actually, I'm not that bad. And once you make that comparison, we don't understand sin, because what we need is the law. Try to live every day by the law. Take. God's word, from Exodus 24 up to Leviticus 10, and try to live by it 
every moment of every day. And then take also Matthew chapters 5 and 6 and try to live by that every day of every moment. And if you can honestly say that you perfectly keep that law, and I will say there is something seriously amiss in your heart. My friends, actually, I do believe that our church and most churches need the law because, and the right use of the law. Not the law that says, I'm going to apply this law to everybody else except for me. But it's, I'm going to apply this law to my heart all the time. And when I do that, then will my pride be humbled. It should be then that the person who is regularly applying the law can hear people give a word of correction. Hey, brother, sister, you know, I noticed that you were angry the other day with your children. And your first instinct, while it is to be hurt and offended, is to really look deep in your soul and say, I can see that. I know I struggle with that. We should be able to say that if we are understanding the right use of the law, that there is a place for that. And also for the person who's even saying, hey, I noticed that, should be able to say, I noticed that because I struggle with that myself. And because I struggle with that, I know we're fellow strugglers, and therefore, let's struggle with it together. Let me pray for you. Let me work this through with you and you with me and so that therefore we can both see and run towards Christ, our need for hope, for grace. See, that's the believing community. We come together. We see the right use of the law. It convicts our hearts of sin and we come together and say, let's pursue pursue Christ together. Those are the wondrous blessings of the law. So let's look at these two blessings, verses 26 to 29. The first is that we realize through Christ that we are heirs. We're not slaves or servants. We're sons and daughters. We're heirs. And then secondly, we realize in Christ, we are all together. First, we are all heirs. For in Christ Jesus, verses 26, 27, 29, you are all sons of God through faith, For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have been put on Christ, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The law only carries us to the one who brings us freedom and joy. The law doesn't bring us freedom and joy. It carries us from protective custody. We are transferred from one to the next, from the child and the pedagogue to the parents, the that come home, we're transferred from one to the next. The law carries us. It transfers us to Christ. And I'm so thankful for that. I need the law. Jesus is the one who not only saves us, but he brings us into his family. The law only brings us, but Jesus is the one who actually does the work of making us heirs, making us sons and daughters. And we get to inherit the promise that was given to Abraham. So the whole Bible speaks of this promise. We never need to doubt that you are significant. In Christ Jesus, you are a son and daughter. That has to be your core identity. And never, ever, ever let anyone in this world tell you anything otherwise than the fact that in Christ, you are a son or daughter. Think of the uh, parable of the prodigal son. The son comes to realize he isn't worthy anymore. He's eating 
pig slop. He's miserable. But before that, he was living it up. He could do whatever he wanted. And by God's grace, the law, the pig slop showed him, you know what? You can't. And as long as, see, the tendency is to think, as long as there's prosperity, everything is great. God, is, God loves us, there's a blessing. But if you look at the parable, uh, the prodigal of the parable son, a prodigal son, you realize how when he was doing well, when everything was prosperous, the father was far from him. And so to us, we so quickly are wanting, and again, it's not to say we should never ask for prayers for health or for a new job, opportunities, to be able to get the grades that I want, to go to the schools that I want, the grad schools that I want, to be able to marry such and such a person. But if our lives are just filled with prayers for prosperity, beware, because sometimes that prosperity is exactly what God is going to use, perhaps, and if he's judging you, to drive you even away from himself. Prosperity is definitely not quite frequently the place where we meet the Lord closely. It is often in the pig slop. And so the law shows us that. It shows us that we are at the end of ourselves. And for those of you who have experienced that, perhaps you've forgotten it, and therefore grace isn't so sweet. But there are some of you who have never been at the end of yourself. That sense of, I have nothing. There's nothing in me. And it's so much the reason why so many who have been at in, in sort of the lowest dregs of life, once they turn to Christ, have such a joy and delight in him because they know the depth of their sin. And the problem for so many of us who are so good, so prosperous, so comfortable, so secure in our homes, is that we actually don't think we're so bad. We don't really need a savior. We're our own savior. Only when the prodigal son recognized at the end of his rope, you know what? It would be better to be a slave in my father's house than to be here at this place. Only when that happened. And so we all know the story. He starts walking home. Can imagine all the thoughts that are coming into his mind as he is walking home. And as the father sees him, he runs to him. And does the father say to him, you know, you're so terrible. You don't deserve to be my son anymore. I reject you. I I disown you. You are cast out of my house. No. When he finally says, I'm not worthy. I'm just going to, I just want to be a slave. If I could just stand on your doorstep, that would be good enough for me. And that's when the father says, you're my son. Welcome home. God opposes the proud, according to James 4, 6, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will lift you up. God's goal in your life is not to make you miserable for eternity. It is to exalt you, to lift you up. But unless you understand that humility, that brokenness that comes from the law, you will only be a self-exalter. And that only lasts for this time in this world. And one day, when you really need it the most, you will be ground down in the dust, according to Scripture. And that's 
the last thing you want to hear or see. Paul says that the picture of this reality is baptism. If we look at verses 26, 27, you've been baptized into Christ. May I just take an aside and put this to all of you? If you have never been baptized and you say you trust in Christ and you're a believer and you have understood the depth of your sin and the rising in Christ and you've never been baptized, then I ask you, why not? Something is wrong. And maybe you don't understand baptism, which makes sense. Maybe because you haven't been struck, by, uh, struck down by the law and come to the end of yourself. And if that's the case, then do not be baptized. But if you're saying, that has happened to me, and you're saying, but I don't want to be baptized, then you're disobeying Jesus. And that's a sin. So if you're in your heart saying, I believe and trust in Christ, and you're deciding I'm not going to be baptized, then you're actually opposing God. And you should be saying, just like the Ethiopian eunuch, there's some water there. Let me be baptized. Why? What's holding me back? Right? That makes sense, right? So if you are saying you're a believer who actually has been struck, by and down, struck down by the law, saved by grace, knowing Christ, then you should say, please, give me some water. <laughs> Throw me into the tank right now. I want to be baptized. I, I know that to be true. That's my aside on baptism. If you are a believer of Christ, Paul says you're an heir. Remember this every day. Remember the cost of what it cost to make you an heir, to make you a son or daughter. You don't need to live in the pig slop, in the mud pit anymore of your rebellion and sin. You can come to your senses and say, I'm done. I'm done eating here. I'm going back to my father, even as a slave. And when you humble yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up. I really love J.I. Packer's exhortation here. He says this, do I as a Christian understand myself? Do I know my own real identity, my own real destiny? I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. Oh, and for those of us, as we age, you know that to be true. Every day is one day nearer. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Say it over and over again to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, any time when your mind is free and ask God that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true, for this is the Christian spirit of the Christian life of a God-honoring life. This is your secret. The secret is that you are a son or daughter. Say it again. <laughs> Say it over and over when you wake up, when you go to sleep, when you're in the bus stop, when you're walking, when you're at the post office, when you're at UPS, wherever you are, when you're at church, when you're on the ball field, wherever you are, say it to yourself. Because what it says then is that if I am an heir, that every day death is one day nearer, but new life, my eternal home is that much closer. You know what? With that, suddenly the things that we so are anxious about, it's not as fretful as you would have imagined. The things that we are placing our hope in, the treasures of this world, the money, the succeed, the prestige, all of those things that we are striving for so much every day. If we really understand our core identity, 
Heaven is our home. Every day we're getting closer to it. Every day. Then we will be free. And the Christian spirit and the secret is to remember this. The second blessing is that we are all together. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Why is this true in light of the law? Because we all mess up in light of the law. We're absolutely equal. Again, if you were to go to the prisons and if you were to sit there and do ministry to prisoners and you know these are the people who have done the worst things, someone who understands the power of the law and its proper use would be going to that prison saying, I am no better morally than any of you. Can you do that? Do you believe that? If you really believe that, then that prisoner who has committed murder can be your brother or sister. More so than someone who is wealthy, sitting in this church, who has been going to church all their life, but they don't see themselves so badly. They don't need Christ. They've never turned to him. They've never been at the end of their self. And I tell you that that murderer who is in that prison, who has come to the end of their self and turn to Christ is much more closer to you than that person who is sitting in the church who is ethnically the same, who makes the same amount of money, who has the same clothing and lives as, as a next door neighbor in your suburban house, driving the same type of car, having the same type of children. That murderer is your brother, not that person. They will never understand you. Though they can take vacation with you, they can talk to you about all their family issues and they look exactly the same. But they are far from you. But that murderer knows you. You're in the same family. The law puts us all together. So you could see why Paul closes this part by saying there is neither Jew nor Greek. We have to have an eye transplant, a spiritual eye transplant. And the spiritual eye transplant says, I know that I am a guilty sinner saved solely by grace through Christ, not on the basis of any effort or merit. And when that happens, then the black grandmother in Malawi is closer to me as a sister than, again, perhaps even my own blood sister if she doesn't know Christ. We have to see that our community rests in the reality of the gospel, not in what we look like, whether we have the same life stage, whether we make the same amount of money or this have the same educational status or move in the same social circles. What defines us is not race and ethnicity or national identity. What defines us is Christ. And if the church could get that, we would truly be a prophetic voice in a world where there's all these sides, politically, ethnically, economically. As long as we succumb to the world's structures and what is sort of the popular cultural milieu and just simply submit to that and say, whatever is popular in the world is how we define ourselves as believers, we will never be a witness for the gospel's sake. No, it is what stands straight in a crooked generation is us being together solely for Christ. 
the gospel changes us. It's why we have to have both a, a long view, an eternal view, both locally and globally, the places we impact around us. And the, the challenge for us is that this church is geographically and physically located in a suburban, wealthy neighborhood. And so our neighbors are like that. But we need to see beyond that scope. And it is possible. But that might mean doing things that are uncomfortable, going to places that are less safe. If we're focused so much on all sorts of issues, social issues of the day, and I can't tell you how often I hear, every once in a while I'll get an email or someone saying, are you going to preach about this, this current event, this political issue, this social issue? If that were the case, the gospel would be gone from us. Because basically that would be driving everything that we do. I'm not saying we never speak on these issues, but what drives us is Christ. And then how we respond is based on the gospel itself. And that is what will impact us and will not be driven by every ebb and flow of our culture. And so let us then say we are united locally and globally, internally as a community and externally outside these walls by the fact that we are all level at the foot of the cross. The law shows us that and we're all saved by grace. Christ reveals that and brings us to that. And that then says, no matter where God brings us, even to the ends of the earth, we will have such delight in bringing Christ to them. And so they are our brothers and sisters, our family. You know, they are not someone in Malawi or in Dubai or in um, Japan or in Bolivia. These are not just random people who we hear about every once in a while. They are our brothers and sisters. That's our unity, our hope. And it's all for the sake of Christ. And that impacts how we view people in our church, in the, our local communities, and in our world. May Wellspring be a place where we proclaim the promises of the gospel as heirs, as sons and daughters, through Jesus Christ. What a wonderful family to be a part of. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your loving kindness is better than life. And thank you for reminding us once again of how much we have been saved from. It is solely because of the fact that, Jesus, you paid a heavy price, a dear price, so that we would be all level at the foot of the cross. We are already level at that foot because of our sin. The law shows us that. And if we were to all be in a prison right now, as we talked about earlier, there would be perhaps a better realization of just how dark our souls are. But the circumstances might change, but our hearts are the same, Lord. And help us to see that. Without Jesus, without the gospel, we, it is hopeless. No matter how we're dressed, where we're located, what we look like physically, what our faces, what colors we are, how much money we make, 
But in Christ Jesus, there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. You have broken the bondage of all of those barriers that keep us separated from ourselves and most of all separated from our loving Father. And help us to once again see the few, the, just the beauty of the gospel of Christ. That you love us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of your great mercy. So Lord, forgive us of our sins. And thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray.